Hello and welcome to the next installment of the SOF Heyman Bookshelf, a podcast celebrating recent work by faculty members in the arts and sciences at Columbia University. I'm Constantine Lignos. This episode, celebrating recent work by Jeremy Dauber, is drawn from a panel brought together virtually on April 5th, 2022, to discuss Dauber's recently published book, American Comics, A History. Jeremy Dauber is the Atran Professor of Yiddish Language, Literature, and Culture, and Director of Columbia's Institute for Israel and Jewish Studies. His research interests include Yiddish literature, comparative Jewish literature, the Yiddish theater, American Jewish literature and popular culture, and American literature and popular culture. Jeremy Dauber developed this book out of thinking he did teaching a class on the American graphic novel at Columbia for about 10 years with his co-teacher, Paul Levitz. Levitz himself is a seminar instructor at Columbia who has also been a comic book fan, editor, writer, executive, and historian who you'll hear Dauber refer to in his remarks which follow. Between Dauber and Levitz, it should come as no surprise then that the book clocks in at 592 pages, its original manuscript being over twice the length. Here's Jeremy Dauber. This book, I'd like to just briefly introduce it, sort of a couple and make a couple of quick points about the book uh, and, and some of the, the, the interesting things that sort of I went through while sort of writing it. This book really is a Columbia project in two, I think, very fundamental ways, um, which also earn debts of gratitude. The first is that like maybe a good number of the books that we write, that we all write, it was developed in part out of the, the thinking that I did in teaching a class on the subject here. And I've been teaching with my co-teacher, Paul Levitz, a class on the, uh, mostly on the American graphic novel for uh, about 10 years. And uh, it, it was the, the byplay between Paul and myself and thinking about what we were both going to say, what I was going to say, and with all of the student responses that really sort of helped to kind of formulate some of the, the particular readings and the thoughts that came out of the book. And so I'm really grateful to all the students and of course to Paul. The making of this book, like all books, also involved reading a lot of books, um, both of the comic variety and the scholarship variety. And I am blessed for this to be a Columbia project in this way as well, that we have a remarkable sort of Columbia uh, comics collection at the libraries. And this is thanks almost entirely to the work of Karen Green and who who uh, I could not have done this without. So, And all of the people at the library, many of whom I thank in the acknowledgments, who did not yell at me when I showed up with stacks and stacks of the books to sort of read through a lot of the material for the book. And I guess, you know, in the process of writing the book and in teaching the class, you know, one of the things that very frequently happened that I that I realized uh, growing up as a superhero loving kid who then found Mouse and then who found a lot of it was that very frequently when, when you have people in, in, you know, our fields talk about comics, you know, they really talk about one particular branch of comics or another. Very frequently, they're superhero people, they're sort of mainstream corporate comics, or they're, let's call them, independent, alternative, there are lots of different names. And very rarely uh, does uh, the twain uh, meet in the scholarship. Not never, of course, but, but not, not as often as maybe we would like. And, and in, in writing this book, 
I wanted to try and tell a story that kind of brought everything together as part of one larger tapestry. And part of the reason for that was that very many of the people I found and, you know, doing my research for the class who were the creators of a lot of this stuff were very, you should excuse the expression from a professor who does a lot with Jewish studies, but they were very Catholic in their tastes. Uh, they really did enjoy reading and were inspired, maybe sometimes at different points in their lives, but by a wide variety of this material. And so I felt like maybe there was a way of trying to put my arms around uh, a lot of that material and make it part of one uh, kind of larger story. And so that was part of the impetus uh, in trying to tell that story. And, and going back to, to maybe places where uh, certain histories of comics might not have started, really going back to the, the late 19th century. And so what that also did, and as it does whenever any of us write our cultural histories, was, was to try, and I thought this was a lot of fun in writing sort of something that was a much larger historical project than anything I'd done before was to try and put the veil of ignorance over myself uh, and kind of write the book chronologically, thinking from the perspective of the, the, the all of the players at that particular moment. They don't know what's going to happen kind of ahead of them. And so the example I often give when I talk about this is that uh, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, the creators of Superman, they don't know you know, that this is going to be an iconic property that's going to make billions and billions of dollars. You know, they don't they don't know this at all. They see a, a product, right, that they've been trying to sell to the high status newspaper strip world that's been rejected everywhere. And so they uh, they decide, well, what can they do but try and sell it to this sort of schlocky comic book operation? And this doesn't uh, uh, excuse the kind of capitalist predatory behavior, let's say, of some of the people involved on the business end. But it certainly explains the reason why they were willing to jump at this kind of decision, because of course they don't know what's gonna happen next and they are where they are. Um, and it was fun to kind of, at every given moment of this story, try and see only what they were where they, where they were. Obviously uh, we can't do that precisely, but that was sort of an interesting thing that came out. I thought also that it was very interesting for me uh, to discover all sorts of works and ideas by looking at the scholarship of people like Tanir and Ariana and many others of things that I didn't necessarily, I'd never even heard of before. And that was another way of also thinking about much of the uh, material that had been marginalized both by processes of general sort of historical and social and sociological sort of phenomena, uh, materials that, let's say, had been written by women or appeared in, let's say, black syndicates, uh, black owned newspapers, things like that, or also simply had not for reasons of we focus on one thing or another, they just simply had fallen out of the critical discourse. And obviously, my researches were shaped by that kind of conversation as well. You can only know what you know. But there was something about saying, I'm going to read, God help me, all of the material that was published in the countercultural and underground era that appears in the Alexander Street database, regardless of just because it's there, and then see what comes up. And you find things that very rarely were not mentioned. This is my history. Someone else would have found other things that were interesting and sort of churning through that database. I'm very aware of that. Uh, but what, can, what can't escape one's own subjectivity? The final point that I want to make and that really was very interesting to me as a result, I think, of 10 years of teaching with Paul was a real emphasis on the institutional and the business side and the contingency sides of this, that this really was a story uh, of those kinds of decisions that were being made uh, as well. It would be very useful, for example, and very, uh, in some cases, humbling to be in a class and start talking about Watchmen 
uh, for example, and have Paul standing next to me saying, well, you know, I was in the room when we made this decision, and that's actually not why we did it. We did it because we needed three pages to fill, and thus and such was going on. Um, and that kind of voice in the back of the head of saying, really, isn't this a conversation about keeping printing presses running? Isn't this a conversation about paper quality? Isn't this a conversation about what kinds of inks the paper are going to hold? Those are the kinds of things that very frequently in certain kinds of writing that I would often do, you know, in sort of literary analysis, I didn't think about as much. But in writing this kind of cultural history, it became very interesting and important for me to do that. And so much of the story of the development of, let's call it sort of the graphic novel, right, is really about sort of looking at kind of corporate arrangements, business decisions, and things like that, that that increasingly became, uh, I don't want to say a preoccupation, but a, a very, certainly a central part of the kind of story that I wanted to tell. I was overall just overwhelmed by the sheer amount of treasures that were out there over the kind of 100, 150 years that I studied. And you will be maybe unsurprised or maybe just shocked to learn that the original draft I handed into my editor was almost twice the size uh, of the one that you see before me. But you just, there was just so much uh, and is so much that's worth celebrating, entertaining, that's thought provoking, that's interesting, uh, that's problematic, that, that wanted to be discussed. And so I really, in some ways, hope that there are lots of people who will read this book. They can agree and disagree with Barton. I'm sure they, that there's lots to disagree with, lots of, but that it will be, in many ways, certain kinds of little places to dip into to start further conversations and to start other kind of work. And, and we're kind of starting that in certain ways here tonight. So I'm really excited to start that conversation. Next, we'll hear from Tanir Oxman, a writer, teacher, and scholar. She is Associate Professor of Academic Writing at Marymount Manhattan College, where she teaches classes in writing, literature and comics, and journalism. Her interests revolve around comics and visual narrative, contemporary feminist literature, and memoir studies, as well as 20th and 21st century Jewish-American literature and culture. She is the author of the 2016 book, How Come Boys Get to Keep Their Noses? Women and Jewish-American Identity in Contemporary Graphic Memoirs. Here, Tanir traces the various threads that run through American comics and asks important questions about the future of comics, like where are digital technologies leading us? Are we ready to find new ways to talk about audience? Here's Tanir. The most exciting and ambitious aspect of American comics for me is its synthesizing, both of the touchstones of comics history, but also what Jeremy was saying, the subjects often left out of official comic histories. So these are instead more often the subjects of what we might think of as whisper networks or blogs, Twitter threads, conversations behind comics convention scenes or after drinks at an MLA comics forum gathering. I'll highlight mainly two threads, which the book steadfastly returns to chapter after chapter, even with so much other territory necessary to cover. So first is that authority issue, questions of copyright, ownership, distribution, that old battle between creating things as you want to create them and then worrying about what more powerful people will want the work to look like or will do with that work once they have it. So we see this in battles over characters like the Yellow Kid, who simply got handed over to a new artist when its original creator, Richard Outcall, was acquired along with his paper. We see it most famously with Siegel and Schuster, creators of Superman, who had no rights to their creation and were reminded in the book that Schuster was eventually picked up as a vagrant in Central Park. That thread is not dropped. And then more recently, we see it with Alan Moore's comments about the rights to his medium altering creation Watchmen via DC, 
of course, related to a change in who was in charge. So the second issue, very much related to the authority issue, is the issue of representation, which Jeremy also mentioned. So it's not just the racist and misogynistic content in so much of this history of comics. It's also the backdrop to the making of this content. And these belong to some of the most famous comics figures, and the book does not shy away from them. So these are figures and texts that have shaped comics as we know them, from early strip creators to visionaries like Will Eisner or cult figures like Robert Crumb. So what the book returns to again and again is the seemingly contradictory premise that a mode that could be such a powerful weapon for resisting the status quo of a mechanism for political and social satire, and and this is largely because of its status as an art of condensation, can also be a mean for spreading stereotypes, for collapsing context, and inciting hatred. So both of these things the book keeps showing us can be true at the same exact time. Now, the book, as again, Jeremy mentioned, it's also, it traces the story of various technologies, the printing press, paper, also film, television, radio, the digital realm. Some of these are circular. So there's radio in the early 20th century affecting comics and then later comics and podcasts, right? Affecting podcasting. So by way of questions, one question that lingered for me by the end of the book was where those digital technologies are leading us, particularly when it comes to artistic and formal exploration. For example, does the digital mode, the comicsology interface, which allows you to see a full page, does it discourage creative innovation? And are there ways in which the online realm is spurring creative content, like on Instagram, which by the way, also brings up authority issues because now who owns those images. Another important thread that can be traced throughout the book, so the comics for kids versus adults binary that gets really complicated, even as its genealogy is explained. And this bodes the question, is the future of comics in further dissolving some of the strictures of this divide? So here I'm thinking about the ways in which Raina Telgemeier's Guts graphic novel, which as you point out, was one of the most successful uh, graphic novels in comics history. It was read and reviewed and adored by adults, including me, including Times reviewers, alongside younger generations. So are we maybe ready to find new ways to talk about audience, especially given how many best-selling comics seem already to break down that divide? So you could think about, for example, Gene Yang's work. And in an age where kids' everyday encounters on the street, at school, online, can be scarier than any classic EC horror comic. So what are the stakes of that conversation about age and comics today? How can we find a better way to talk about it, especially when books are being banned for ostensible inappropriateness? Of course, here I'm thinking about mouse. I have one uh, direct question about image, and I actually found it very refreshing to read a history of comics without any images. I was thinking about how the problem of including images would have been overemphasizing certain aesthetics or themes. So I wonder, was that a case of authority or was it a, you know, a decision and what was the decision behind that? What was the reasoning behind that decision? Okay, I'm going to end with a few words that Art Spiegelman once said, explaining his practice of filling the space of panels. I think one thing I really learned from my father, this is Spiegelman, was how to pack a suitcase. It was the one thing he wanted to make sure I understood, like how to use every available centimeter to get as much packed into a small space as possible. So this is a quote of Spiegelman talking about comics, but it reminded me of this book and how somehow it's all packed in here. Here's Jeremy Dauber's response to Tanir's comments on the digital, the audience, and the lack of images in his book. 
Let's listen. I think that one of the things about writing uh, you know, a history is that almost definitionally, I say this in the epilogue of the book, it doesn't really stop. And there are all sorts of things that you can um, really see that you are in the middle of and you don't and you don't have uh, necessarily the two feet sort of planted firmly to make uh, kind of statements about. There's that famous quote to say that predictions are hard, especially about the future. Um, and uh, there's a way in which predicting the past is kind of difficult enough in that vein. I think that the digital, obviously, what I'm talking about here, among other things, is that digital thing. A couple of points, though, that I think I can make about this uh, exactly to sort of uh, limb the tensions uh, that that Tanir that is talking about. On the one hand, I think that there is no question that the digital, the, the shift to data, the digital revolution and expansion has allowed for the possibility of diversity of representation of creativity in a way that could was literally impossible, uh, not only for ideological reasons, but also for structural reasons. Literally, um, it was very, very near impossible if you wanted to get work in let's call the mainstream comics to do so for much of the history of the medium if you didn't live within a very narrow geographical area. That is obviously no longer the case. It is also the case that market-driven demands really allow for a certain kind of democratization uh, that that is, uh, you know, in some senses, although of course there are many different biases built in, but in some senses much more open than ever before. If you produce art and 10 million people like it on Instagram, the companies are going to notice this. And it doesn't matter the, you know, who is drawing them, they are going to notice 10 million likes uh, on this. And that opens certain doors, not all of them, not all the way, but it allows for certain kinds of possibilities. That said, many of these products of which allow for this diversity of possibility, whether it be kickstarted self-funded projects, whether it be Instagram, whether, right, are controlled by giant corporate entities. And we've already seen the possibilities of either sort of explicit ideological censorship because of political concerns about content or simply messing with the tech because of things that happened on Comixology recently, uh, messing with it for reasons having to do with update that then just sort of make things disappear. Both of those are kind of concerns that aren't necessarily, that, that, that are outgrowths of other kinds of panics and, and sort of technological concerns, but they are uh, newly kind of pervasive uh, as a result of this. And that is still a story that we're trying to, to figure out and that will change again and again and again, sort of as the decades uh, go on, I'm sure. I think one of the things that we can say sort of as a prediction, I think about this a lot, uh, that goes to your second point about audience. If you had said to eight-year-old me living uh, in, in, in New Jersey that you would be able to go to a public library and not just find the one copy of, let's say, Jules Pfeiffer's book with kind of a couple of comics in there, but a wall full of comics on every kind of dimension under the sun. And what's more, some of those things were in the library because we knew that they were going to be taught in parts of school curricula. I would have said, my, my me, the eight-year-old, not you, but I would have been in heaven. This would have been utopia uh, to me. And I think that that kind of revolution, and we, we can and should talk about some of the retrograde and retrogressive sort of movements that are going on to censor and the certain other right but that kind of movement of saying this medium belongs in libraries and in public schools that's not going to go away i find that very very difficult to 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 believe uh, particular titles yes lots of fights about particular titles the medium i don't think so i think that has really sort of made its win thanks in no small part to people like reina uh, telgemeier 
uh, but but also to John Lewis, also uh, despite sort of the the narrative that's now raging about Art Spiegelman. Lots of different things have sort of moved this forward in a way that I find almost culturally irreversible. And I agree with you that part of that is leading to a kind of erosion between these categories of child and adult in the same way that over the last 20 years, is something I didn't really talk so much about uh, in the book because it wasn't quite on topic, but the development of YA as a kind of cultural category also sort of is eroding kind of these materials uh, in a certain way. Um, and, and I think that's, uh, that's important. Part of publishing a book at this length is about price. And there were choices that were being made, which was to allow, and, and, or predators, things like that, to allow images, right? Or to raise the price, to lower the price, to make the book a lot shorter. Um, and I have to say that Norton was in very, very supportive of the decisions that I want to make. I said, perhaps wrongly, that I wanted an extra X number more words and didn't want that pressure of cutting even more words uh, to tell my story rather than have the images. Could be a mistake. Certainly some of the uh, reviews on Amazon suggest so. Uh, you know, th this really is one of the choices that had to be made. If we had this length plus images, it was, and I told myself, perhaps just telling myself what I wanted to hear, that because of the internet, if you wanted to, if you wanted to find this panel, you know, a picture of this, one could do it. Understanding in my heart of hearts that really that's not how any of us read books, but I was hoping that I could tell myself that. So that is, you know, I, I, that, is, that is essentially the honest story behind this. The event's moderator, Rachel Adams, a professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia University, asks Jeremy about the price of comics. Put simply, why are comic books so expensive to publish? Why are comics so expensive? It is striking to me, given the history, you recount both the reputation and the genesis in the cheapest forms of printing, that today comics are almost prohibitively expensive. And so there's a question of access in that way, much as at the same time you're saying, you know, we find the books everywhere. You know, it's a great question. And, uh, you know, there, there, there certainly must be people better uh, equipped to answer this than me, but I will, I will give you some theories about it. One of the reasons the comics were so popular for a long time, there's going to be a weird way of getting to the answer, was that they were artificially cheap for a while, uh, that, that they stayed at a price point that was actually much lower than they needed to be uh, to bring them. And then, the, then one, of the re one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons the comics cratered was when the prices were sort of suddenly jumped uh, to take advantage of inflation. And inflation is a lot of the story, right? But uh, other things I, I think I would say, Comics are a kind of labor intensive process, right? There's a lot of costs that can go in and, and that accounts for some of the cost. Um, some of the cost also comes from the increasingly small audience, I think, for what we might call pamphlets or floppies or comic books. I'm talking about here in the core in the mainstream kind of thing, right? As opposed to somebody who is publishing this stuff independently, right? That's a different kind of cost. So um, what's increasingly happened, I think in many cases, is that certainly in the 21st century, there were a lot of comics that were selling um, in pamphlet form, at least, uh, in numbers that would have gotten them, you know, and these are the best selling comic books that would have gotten canceled very easily 20 or 30 years before these circulation numbers. And what that I think what that means is you have companies saying, well, we can charge these amounts um, that are higher and higher price points to people who are so committed to these books that they're going to pay their their demand is fairly, uh, there's an econ economics term that I'm not thinking of at the moment, but their demand is fairly inflexible 
for this. So they'll continue to pay and everybody else just won't. And they will get this in other kinds, increasingly in other kinds of ways. Either they'll get it in a graphic novel form, right? And here, I don't mean the graphic novel in the sense that sometimes we use this as an aesthetically ambitious thing, but a trade collection, or they will get it on a kind of subscription service, increasingly like Comixology or Marvel Unlimited. Um, and so you have these kind of possibilities uh, to say, well, we're going to get around sort of paying the $3.99 or whatever it is for this 22-page uh, comic book. Um, and I have to say that, you know, increasingly, I think that has, uh, you know, I uh, right now the circulation numbers actually seem to be okay. But if you asked me to take a bet within 20 or 30 years on the survival of the pamphlet form for the reasons that you're talking about, that I'm much less salient on than the future of the comic business, sort of more broadly speaking, which I'm very, very bullish on. Last, but certainly not least, an audience member at the event took an opportunity to ask Jeremy the question on everyone's mind, and that is, who would win in a battle between the Incredible Hulk and Mr. Natural? Let's listen. Basically, I think what would happen would be the Hulk would kind of look at him. Mr. Natural would tell the Hulk to um, go take a long walk off a short pier, although in much more pungent language. And then the Hulk would pound him into the ground. So there you have it from the mouth of an expert. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. But I want to thank Jeremy Dauber and all of the panelists who were present at the event. My thanks to you as well for listening. Once again, today's episode was Celebrating Recent Work by Jeremy Dauber. The title of his newest book is American Comics, A History. The SOF Heyman Bookshelf is sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans at the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. Our theme music is Moonrise by Paddington Bear from soundofpicture.com. I hope you'll join us again next time.